0: Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein.
1: Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Uh, Before I introduce today's guest, I want to give you a little bit of background on why I'm so excited to have him. Today, we're told that our use of fossil fuels is causing a global environmental catastrophe, and that the solution is for government to dictate what kind of energy we should use, namely solar and wind. Both this prediction and this policy so the prediction of catastrophe and the policy of dictating energy, specifically solar and wind, we're told are the conclusions of the best experts, especially environmental experts like climate scientists, and thus we should not question them. Now, on today's show, my guest, you may recognize him from power hours of years past, Pierre Rocher, will explode this idea by talking in depth about the track record of our designated environmental experts, which he does in his recent book, Population Bombed, with collaborator Joanna Schirmack. Now, this is something I do to some extent in The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, and in my next book, I do it even more, but Pierre takes it to another level. I should say Pierre and Joanna take it to another level. Uh, Pierre is one of my favorite Power Hour guests of the past, and I'm excited to have him back. He's a geographer, uh, which means that he always brings a very wide-ranging perspective as well as a long-range perspective to issues. So without further ado, Pierre, welcome to Power Hour. It's really me. What's that?
0: I said, thanks for having me.
1: Oh, God. Um, so I want to start out with what I think is the big lesson of your book. And and uh, you, can, you, know, you can disagree with me or agree with me. Uh, but I take, and this is, I'm wording it my own way. But I take it as the world's designated environmental experts have a track record of falsely predicting that economic freedom will lead to environmental catastrophe. And they have a track record of prescribing dictatorial policies that would have proved to be genocidal. Now, is is that the theme of your book, or at least a big theme of your book?
0: It is a big theme of the book, but where the book will perhaps teach something to your listeners who might go, oh, another history of thought since uh, 19, from the 1960s to today. The point, one of the things we try to do in the book is to sort of fill the gap um, uh, in terms of the history that uh, even most pro-fossil fuel or most uh, Prometheans or anti-Malthusians do not really know because the way the story is usually told, well, Malthus came along around 1800, he was proving wrong. And then you've got Paul Ehrlich and the environmentalist in the 1960s. Now, what has been lost, and I think it was partly deliberate on the, the part of uh, modern-day environmentalists and the... Uh, environmental historian, is that there is actually a huge history of uh, back and forth on both what we would call Malthusianism and anti-Malthusianism between Malthus and Paul Ehrlich. So one of my goals in the book was to cover that history and to show that these debates uh, did not go dormant for a century and a half. I mean, they were revived. On, to the contrary, they were revived every generation. The arguments didn't change all that much. I mean, there is rare, there is barely anything new that is being said today. Uh, the vocabulary might change, but the, the underpinning idea that, you know, knowledge is the key resource or that humans create resources, they don't just consume them. Uh, they've been around since the beginning. They were around before Maltus. Uh, they were around when Maltus was first criticized by his opponent. Um, they were reborn every generation. And the optimists, the pro-industry types, have been proven right for two centuries now, not just the last uh, 40 or 50 years. And so, one attempt in the book is to show that there is probably another reason why those teams keep coming back. And I think we will discuss them in more detail, obviously. But uh, the point is that the Malthusians, as you say, have always uh, promoted uh, dramatic policy prescription in the name of an imminent catastrophe. And they've been proven wrong for 200 years. And when you point that out, I think it, it adds a little bit more to uh, the discourse than. Uh, pointing out that, you know, well, in the last 10, 20, 30 years, the data have uh, vindicated the optimists. Uh, What we uh, The case we make in the book is that the data has actually vindicated the optimists for the full two-century period, not just the last 30, 40 years.
1: Yeah, and I I really valued that about the book, and I think we'll talk about some of those historical examples that are not just the ones that maybe my readers uh, are familiar with. So that leads me to the first topic I want to talk about, which is first getting the reality of the last 200 years of economic freedom, uh, especially fossil fuel freedom. And the reason I want to do this is we're talking about the track record of designated experts and then some of the ideas that lead them to that track record. And I think to get the track record of people we're saying are going wrong, we first need to know the track record of reality, the track record of economic freedom over the past 200 years. Now, this is something that I talk about a decent amount. Uh, but you have a lot of really interesting things to say about it. And I think it's particularly, it's just important to emphasize how amazing the progression is. And as I might put it, how much more conducive to human flourishing today's world is than the world of 200 years ago. Uh, So I'd love you to talk about that. And then with that as context, we can look at how these experts have been evaluating it from 200 years ago to the present.
0: Sure, and uh, feel free to add data if I forget a few, but Uh, roughly speaking about 200 years ago the average life expectancy around the globe was about 30 years of age and that's of course because you had a very high child mortality rate today as uh, most of your listeners will know we're pushing around 80 years of age in advanced economies Uh, in terms of wealth uh, there's simply no comparison i mean even if you looked at the poorest people on earth today their standards of living is incomparably better than Uh, the average person uh, than the standard of living of the average person uh, 200 years ago Uh, our water does not make us sick Uh, the air we breathe is incomparably cleaner the problem you have going back is that you must extrapolate a lot in terms of how bad things were but We've got uh, various evidence. We know the type of coal uh, that people were burning. We know how bad the coal burning technologies were. Uh, We have account of what the Thames River looks like. Uh, We have evidence in terms of cholera epidemic. The way I usually describe it to my students, I usually show them pictures of uh, what uh, painters thought uh, paradise looked like around 15 or 1600. And what you see are people sleeping and around them, you've got a few cheeses, a couple of loaves of bread, maybe some venison game, and maybe a carafe with some wine in it. And that's their notion of paradise. And then I will show them a slide with a modern day supermarket. And I'm like, you know, there's no way our ancestors could have even imagined that in their wildest dreams. And look, these people in that 1600 painting, they're sleeping and they're, you know, in the, the most abundant type of world that they can think of. And so, yes, uh, I assume, uh, I mean, this is a very sophisticated audience. I assume that uh, people have a basic understanding of how much better we are, but we've never added so good. Um, A common line I also like to use is that to know, today the main problem of poor people the world over is that they're fat whereas in, in the past they would have uh, died of uh, malnutrition and starvation and so this is what people not understand there were maybe like what a billion people in the world around 1820 today we're pushing on 8 billion we're incomparably wealthier we're incomparably healthier And the only explanation for that, and this is what the point that needs to be driven again, this episode and in others, is that humans create resources, a large population and more abundant energy is what those people not understand, but uh, I don't know if you want to add something else here to set the background
1: for now. Yeah, I think that's that's most of it. I mean, I, I really like thinking of things in terms of time. So if you think about like how good an environment is, I think about it like how much how much value do you get and how much anti-value do you get in a given amount of time. So if you think of something like the supermarket, you think about how much time does it take you to buy all those luxuries in a supermarket? And it's not much time. People get tired of me telling this story, but when I was at Duke, I, uh, you know, I, I had no money for a little while. I mean, my parents were paying for it, so I'm not claiming that I was some impoverished guy, but I ran out of my meal plan. I didn't want to ask for money and I had to figure out how do I survive for as little as possible? And so I would eat lentils and tuna and it would cost me like $20 a week. And it mm-hmm. just, that's driven home to me you know somebody can survive very well today on less than one hour a week's worth of work if you're making 25 30 dollars an hour like that is almost the Garden of Eden and then if you think about how much time it takes you to get clean drinking water, it's a few seconds, like yep. it takes you less time than it would take even someone in an imaginary garden of Eden. So I like to just think of it as an, the, the modern world, if you're looking at it from the perspective of a human environment, there's never been a more nourishing, safe and opportunity filled environment. human beings to live in and enjoy and then the thing i would connect that to which i'll riff for just a second is and then i'm gonna ask you a bunch of questions is if you look at our designated environmental experts with this context in mind that the world is just a completely unprecedented nourishing safe uh opportunity filled place and you look at them talking about it there's a question of okay are there predictions about the world right in the future but one thing that should make us suspicious is there's no celebration of how much better the world is today. It would be one thing if they said, okay, yes, today's world is amazing, but there's gonna be bad stuff in the future. But if you look at someone like a Paul Ehrlich or a Bill McKibben, I'm curious if this is your experience, like they describe today's world as like a hellhole. And actually this brings up the Pope you mentioned in the book, he has this quote about the earth looking like an enormous pile of filth. So is is that your impression too, that these guys, they don't say, oh, just the future is going to be worse. They say today is bad. And they certainly don't talk about it in loving ways like we do.
0: Yes. uh, I should should specify if people listen to this later, we're uh, recording this in uh, mid-January, 2021. (laughs) A few days after Uh, Paul Ehrlich has published yet another comprehensive piece describing how bad the world is. It was published, I believe, on uh, January 13 in uh, Frontiers in Conservation Biology. And uh, you know that a new administration is coming in because every time Paul Ehrlich publishes one big piece, I mean, uh, the original story behind this uh, best-selling 1968 population bomb is that it was written to influence the presidential election back then. So, you know, a new administration is coming in when Paul Ehrlich publishes yet another mm-hmm. Lantis creed on those topics. And uh, yes, yeah, sadly, the Pope has uh, veered away from the uh, traditional Catholic understanding of a growing population. I do allude to it a bit in a book, but I'm currently re- working on a bigger history of that. People believe that the Catholic Church was only opposed uh, to Malthusians on the ground that God said, go forth and multiply. Actually, no, they had a fairly understanding, some prominent Catholic thinkers had a fairly good understanding of resource creation. But to get back to your point, the thing with uh, Earl Lake and others is that ultimately, I will give them the benefit of the doubt because I have colleagues. I happen to be in an environmental studies department and still have a job. Uh, So I know that most of my colleagues are honest about this. The key difference and the reason why these people self-select and why, in my opinion, they're always wrong is that they're unwilling to admit that humans have evolved beyond other species. So human beings do things that you don't see in the rest of the world. The whole discipline of economics, at least if it's done properly, should be around what makes us human. So a uh, trade, uh, we exchange physical goods with one another, no other animal species does that. Uh, we're extremely good at creating new stuff by combining existing things in new ways. So yes, a beaver will create uh, a dam by, uh, you know, mixing uh, mud, uh, mud and logs. But humans keep inventing, reinventing. And the main thing that drives innovative behavior is uh, solving problems, or at least creating lesser problems than those that exist before. So. Um, What Ehrlich has never understood, and the basis of his thinking and of all other people like him is that if there is more of us, and if we consume more, we must be like just a bigger plague of locusts or other animals that, you know, exceed their local environments carrying capacity. And what they've never understood, and I think people self-select when they go into things like conservation biology, is that no, humans are not different. We're no better than other animal species. And the point I tried to make in the book and and slightly more detailed in another piece I published recently, and perhaps you could link to it later, is that, no, from the beginning, uh, anti-Malthusians understood that the laws that apply to other animal species don't apply to human beings. We're different. We think ahead. We have foresight. We trade. uh, We can move things over long distances um whether you know it emerge uh, whatever the cause for it you go back to Jean-Baptiste, say frederick bastia karl marx the Marxists understood that too you cannot simply infer uh, behavior from or patterns of outcome from what you observe in the natural world to human beings because we're different but people like early garrett arden and other never wanted to admit that they believe that humans are ultimately constrained by natural laws that we can't escape and that's really the basis I think the true basis of these debates, are humans different, have evolved beyond other animal species, or are we just a bigger plague of locusts?
1: Yeah, the plague of locusts thing is very memorable (laughs) to to think about it. I I think about it a lot from just the perspective of you think about when nature is nourishing toward us, which is not as often as we would like, but what's happening is just that the elements of nature are being transformed in some way, that benefits us so often, like it gives us food. And the thing is human beings are transformers. We have the ability to transform nature. And so in the same way that, you know, randomly a certain maybe fruit tree or, I don't know the history of these things, but like, you know, that could crop up and that could be fortuitous. Well, we can engineer nature to produce a ton of fruit trees and then you see in some eras, namely eras I think with more warmth and more CO2, there's more like naturally occurring living matter on the planet Well, we can engineer the kind of living matter that we benefit from or even we can be smart enough to say, figure out how to like feed inedible things to pigs so that we can manufacture protein and fat that we can eat. If you think about some of the ingenuity of our ancestors. So just if people recognize that nature that, that like these different physical processes in nature can nourish us. And then we have the ability to transform physical processes. Then we have a potentially unlimited ability to transform nature for the better. I mean, just as like nature just produces a very limited amount of stuff that's good for us and a lot of stuff that's bad for us. And we can just re-engineer that whole thing. And that's what we've been doing. So it's just so striking to me that these environmental thinkers have so little, admiration for like the godlike powers that human beings have to make our environment a much more conducive place.
0: The other thing that they don't get is that Uh, Humans, in a way, sort of broke free from nature about 200,000, 200 years ago, uh, when we began substituting stuff that we extracted from below the surface of the planet to stuff that we used to grow on the surface of the planet. So, uh, well, I'm wearing black today. That's not the best dye, obviously. But dyes at one point were made out of plants and tree barks and people would grow things like indigo. uh, Uh, you you would get blue out of indigo. There was a plant called matter out of which you would get all sorts of orange browns and stuff. Well, eventually these things were created out of a waste product of the uh, manufactured gas industry. So what people would do in the 19th century is that they would bring coal to a city. They would essentially cook it and you would get some gas out of it. And before electricity came along, that's how a lot of urban areas were lit. But that's one of countless things that we've replaced and where I think, I wouldn't say we failed, because I know you've tried for years, I've tried for years, but you try to convey to environmentalists that look, why can't we have more people, more wealth, and more trees? Well, we don't need the land as much as we used to in the past. Now, we make things out of uh, synthetic rubbers. uh, Synthetic rubber ultimately made out of petroleum products, rather than having to grow a bunch of rubber trees to produce rubber. Well, uh, there are more whales than before. Well, yeah, we've developed better substitutes for whale oil. All of this came from underground. And so This notion that you can have your environmental cake and your economic cake too by again substituting stuff that grows on the surface of the planet by stuff that comes from below was again well understood 100 years ago. I mean, uh, I don't think I've quoted them in my book, but in other pieces, but you had people like, uh, well, the economist uh, Eric Zimmerman or uh, the geologist uh, Kirkley Matter at Harvard matter as a quote at one point he says isn't it great you know if you look at 1830 roughly 80% of what we use came from the surface of the planet and he's writing his book in 1940 he says well isn't it wonderful now about 80% of what we use comes from mines and quarries petroleum was still not the biggest thing as, as it is today but people understood that and somehow that was sort of lost. I mean, it was kind of rediscovered these last few years. Uh, You've had other scholars who have uh, put that idea forward. Uh, Matt Ridley has picked up on it. But it needs to be communicated to a broader audience, this notion that, you know, substituting resources. And I've seen a few light bulbs go up uh, when you make that point. Oh, yeah, that's how we can have more stuff and more trees at the same time. Yeah, it makes sense. So uh, I don't know if it's a failure on our part or if you want to expand on that point. But that's, you know, energy is important and it's, it's the most important thing we get out of fossil fuels, obviously, but synthetic materials, instead of just thinking of the negative of, let's say, the sea of plastics or whatever, no, s- synthetic materials have actually had a very good impact in terms of uh, greening our planet.
1: Yeah, there's a lot to say about that issue, but I want to jump into the track record because that's a lot okay, of what sure, your of book does that's very notable, and then maybe I'll talk a little bit more about the issue that you you raised. So I love how your book just we talked about before it goes in detail and it doesn't just show the recent several decades it really shows going back 200 plus years and then even beyond that. And one quote that summarizes what you do is you say we make a deliberate effort to illustrate that the same ideas about resources, development, environment and population have be- been reborn. Or perhaps recycled every generation, and that turning to population control as a means of addressing ongoing environmental woes has been the standard knee-jerk reaction. So, how far do you go back in terms of showing the same line of thinking going back?
0: Well, we go back. Yeah. Well. I- Okay, I'll just point out there are people who like to put everything they know in a book. In my case, I try to keep it short. So I'm not sure if I went back to ancient Babylon, but I have quotes that go back to ancient you Babylon. You mentioned Gilgamesh a
1: couple of times. Yes, that... exactly.
0: So Gilgamesh, Confucius, uh, Plato, Aristotle, uh, early Christian theology, and these uh, these, uh, these ideas of, this, this depletionist perspective has been around for a very long time. But Perhaps something that people don't realize is that Malthus was himself part of a debate. A lot of people think that that he started it. No, he was actually reacting to uh, optimists in the Age of Enlightenment. I mean, basically what you have in the uh, 17th and 18th century is the beginning of this, uh, of the Age of the Enlightenment when people believe that, okay, well, we're beginning to understand how nature works. We will be able to improve things and so, the more of us there are, the better off we will be. And so you have uh, people like Condorcet in France uh, who uh, put up these ideas. And it is against this sort of background that uh, Maltus is reacting. Uh, but then what is lost is that a lot of people um, fired back right away at Maltus saying, no, you're wrong about things. Again, humans are different. Um, It's hard to see that today from the perspective of the 21st century, but Jean-Baptiste Dessay, who was a French uh, free market economist, says at the time, come on, how can you say that? There are a lot less famines today than there were two or three centuries ago. So by today's standards, people in 1820 or 1800 were incredibly poor, but they know that they're better off than people in 1600s. I mean that's partly because uh, you know the potato has come over from uh, the Americas they've developed better farming technologies but C says no we have a lot less famine today than we had a few centuries ago and there's more of us look people create the number of people is not what matters what matters is production and so that mindset is is fairly dominant in much of the western and uh, western intellectual elite in the 19th century now, one thing that I do in the book, which uh, is a bit, got me a bit in trouble with my co so I should point out uh, Joanna is not only my co but she's also my wife, and she's Polish, and she grew up under martial law in Warsaw in the 1980s. So saying nice things about Marxists is not something that goes well, really, with her. So, But the point is that uh, Marx, Engels, Uh, Lenin, Trotsky, even Mao, although I was not allowed to put Mao and Stalin in the book, that's where she drew the line, uh, were really in favor of uh, industrial progress and argued, well, the solution to poverty is not to restrict uh, the number of people, but to increase production. And this is a mindset that is very common in the 19th century among people who believe in the free market, Mm -hmm. among people who are... um, on the left, and you can see this debate uh, going along in the 19th century. There's uh, the, the best selling American environmental textbook in the 19th century is by this fellow named Henry George. He's sort of forgotten today, but, uh, and he has some weird ideas on the land, property, rent, and stuff like that, but otherwise it's fairly free market, and he points out Humans are different. You know, imagine if instead of human beings coming to North America, you would have brought bears. You would have brought European bears. There were North American bears. Would you have had more bears in the end? Well, no. But look at humans. The reason why we have more food is because there are more humans and because we create things. So, you know, the, the more Jayhawks, the less chickens, but the more men, the more chickens. That's the one line is usually remembered for. But he's in in the debate at the time with uh, academics at Oxford, at Cambridge, who are arguing, no, look, Maltus was right. Uh, India will never be able to feed itself and Mm -hmm. the world will collapse in short order. And uh, George and other optimists reply, no, look at the data. The more prosperous societies are the societies with the most people and the most trade. Mm -hmm. Massachusetts is more wealthy. People are better off in Massachusetts than in Brazil. Massachusetts has very little in terms of natural resources. Brazil has a lot more. So what matters is trade, the division of labor, and uh, the more human brains you have. And so I could go on and say that, you know, you had this debate basically every generation uh, up until today. And uh, yes, that's the data was there. People understood it. And somehow there's never been much of an incentive among academics to really write that history. And I'm sort of working on it at the moment.
1: One thing, one example I want you to talk about that I found really interesting that I didn't know anything about was the erosion example. We've talked more broadly about this resource depletion view, just the view that we're going to run out of stuff. And that's kind of the most obvious Uh, the most obvious thing for people to worry about and you know I don't know if you know this but Ayn Rand when she talked about her ideas she said I could not have come up with most of my ideas particularly the idea that reason is man's basic means of survival before the industrial revolution because it hadn't been fully illustrated by history just how our minds can productively manipulate nature and but then she criticized after her like how can you guys still be in the dark ages once we've seen what's possible uh in terms of production so is that like the resource creation thing that was such a fascinating point to me and you see that denied throughout history but then there's this erosion thing and it 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 has a lot of similarities to the climate catastrophes talk about the history of this fear of erosion okay so one
0: common mistake that people do today is that they think that uh, environmentalism uh, came from the left so uh, you have a lot of people who say well uh, you know environmentalists are really watermelons they are green on the outside red on the inside it's been true for two generations but uh for the hundred uh, for the century and a half before that really it wasn't all i will say here is that for example when environmentalism becomes big in the 60s and early 70s uh in the united kingdom for example uh the biggest pushback often comes from the old labor party because they're hardcore marxists and they believe in resource creation so this erosion thing is uh, this erosion episode is completely forgotten today but it was really the first widespread environmental movement. One reason why I think people don't like to remember it is that it really came from the aristocracy and uh, colonial authorities or new dealer type uh, in the United States. So what people were arguing at some point, it's hard to argue that you're going to run out of oil where you keep finding more oil, you're going to run out of coal where you keep finding more coal. And so what a lot of uh, intellectuals or let's say early environmental activists argued a century ago was that well the one thing we're running out of uh, running out of is soil and we don't realize it because you you can see well we get more coffee in north america the price of the coffee is getting cheaper but really people are eroding the uh, the landscape the world over to satisfy our greed and what's interesting and perhaps uh, another reason why it's not all that popular is that One key argument made by the uh, erosion uh, people at the time is that, well, we have erosion because people are primitive. They don't have modern technology. In essence, they were practicing what today we would call permaculture and what environmental activists would like. But the point I'm trying to make here is that the first real global, uh, the real ancestor of global warming, if you will, was really this erosion movement. There is a huge uh, literature on that in the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s, Uh, Your American uh, listeners will have this vague notion that there was this dust bowl thing and that perhaps, you know, dust from Oklahoma found its way in uh, Washington, D.C. And uh, this is an idea that is really, uh, again, pushed at the end of the Second World War. My reading of environmental history, and I'm skipping steps here and I apologize, but a bunch of eugenists at the uh, end of the Second World War have a problem. They were important before, they had a lot of foundation money. What is their relevance? Well, they again become Malthusian, which they couple with this fear of erosion. And in the 1950s, what's interesting in Europe is that you've got a lot of colonial administrations who say, well, one reason we cannot leave Africa is that the locals are already destroying their environment and it will be Mm. even worse once we live. So, you know, they'll destroy the forests and the Gold Coast once the good uh, British authorities uh, are gone. And it's like, you know, you let children play with matches or do you, uh, well, so yeah. So there was a lot of uh, racial uh, underpinnings uh, to this whole movement. And that's how... uh, the uh, environmental movement was really born in the post-World War II, and so I only give you a snippet of that history again in the book, uh, but this is how uh, the people who influenced Paul Ehrlich and the environmentalists in the 60s really came along, both as uh, Malthusians and people who believed that globalization was eroding the one thing without which we couldn't survive, which was the soil.
1: And then it seems like a good transition point to this this point that you, you quote Holdren on. So John Holdren, former science advisor to President Obama and longtime collaborator of Ehrlich. I don't have the exact quote off the top of my head, but he talks about there's this shift from, oh, we're running out of resources to we're running out of environment. And there's this idea of, well, there are these different kinds of systems or sinks, and they can only tolerate so much of our emissions. And if we if we keep making progress, yeah, we're not running out of stuff. We have to abandon that argument because it keeps going wrong. But no, nature can't handle all the stuff we're emitting. So we're gonna put so much CO2 in the atmosphere, it's gonna be a catastrophe or so much pollution in the air, it's gonna be a catastrophe. you talk a little bit about that that progression? Because sure. that seems to be the dominant school of thought, if you wanna call it that today.
0: Yeah, well, you no, know, it's, it's been the traditional pivot of uh, environmentalists. Every generation Malthusians are, proving wrong, are proven wrong not only do we have more resources, but they tend to become cheaper, at least uh, in market economies. Story is obviously different uh, in communist economies. But so you have a lot of people who essentially say, and I think we have another quote from the mid 60s, um, the problem that we have today uh, come, can be read in our economic statistics. You know, Yes, people think that economic growth is good, but look, the pollution that is happening, our rivers are catching on fire. And so, uh, but uh, there were earlier pivots, but it's the standard. Bill Beckerman also did that, I believe, in the late 1990s when he came to realize, oh, we're not running out, peak oil is not going to happen, but look, now we've got too much oil. Therefore, we will have CO2 and nature cannot absorb all our uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So yeah, they've pivoted on global warming, but that was true before. But what's interesting when you go back to the 60s is that Uh, CO2 or greenhouse gas emissions are not a concern. What they're concerned about are are things like uh, sewage, uh, sulfur dioxide, so acid rain, um, and uh, also uh, particulate emissions, which will give you global cooling. And uh, what else I I do in the book, I illustrate, well, you had similar, people saying similar things around 1900. So, you know, uh, we have open air sewers, uh, we're losing our bird populations, we're over hunting them. And yet you can show that for every other indicator except for CO2, the problem came to be solved with uh, more people and more wealth. Now, one argument that I like to make as I plug my own work is that... uh, uh, industry has always had an incentive to create valuable byproducts out of uh, residual, out of production residuals, which is not something again, that Ehrlich uh, really and others understand, you know, they say, well, people should be more like nature. Well, industry is exactly like nature and that the emissions of industries over time tend to be turned into something useful and it's kept within uh, the sphere of production. But yeah, to get back to your question, uh, Environmentalists have been pivoting for a long time because every generation of Malthusian has to admit at one point uh, that it is wrong. But then they have to come up with something. Well, we're going to run out of soil or we're going to have global cooling or uh, we won't be, our rivers will die. Lake Erie, uh, one of the earliest research projects of Paul Ehrlich was to study snakes, I believe, in Lake Erie. And he said something in the late 60s to the effect, Lake Erie will be dead soon. Uh, No, I live not too far from Lake Erie. When I visit my friends in a little town called Port Dover in Ontario, that's the main fishing port on Lake Erie. And I eat a lot of fishes that are uh, fish from Lake Erie and I'm still standing and uh, there's no shortage of fish. So yeah, they've been pivoting for a very long time. And greenhouse gas emissions are but the latest form of pivot. And I would argue that's also in large part because every other form of pivot proved wrong.
1: Yeah. And if, just to go back to the perspective as human beings, as, as transformers. I mean, we can transform the raw materials of nature into products. And then as you've pointed out, and we talked about it in an old power hour, we can transform even the seemingly negative byproducts into valuable products, as you often talk about it, waste into wealth. And they keep, you know, one, one thing that's interesting with this switch is in the 60s and 70s, you know, you had Ehrlich both saying that we're going to have too much, not enough fossil fuel And then we're going to have too much because it's going to pollute the cities and the atmosphere is going to become unbreathable. And then global cooling, which I'll talk about uh, in a second. But then, of course, and he said he has some quote like, you know, pollution control is like giving an aspirin to somebody who has cancer. Like that's versus, no, what actually happened is we became better at transforming those emissions into at least a neutral form or lessening them in different kinds of ways. And so then what do they go to? They go to CO2 and the genius of going to CO2 is that the emission itself, we don't have a cost effective way of reducing. Uh, Now the problem is, it's really hard to actually point to something that's a problem uh, coming from that. Cause it's like heat and then, okay, is it really so hot? And now people are freezing to death right now in Asia. And so then, and then what happens is then they start going back to resource shortages. Like, oh, well it's going to screw up agriculture yeah. and now oh, it's going to prevent this. And, and, and of course it's being very successful rhetorically, but it's, it's really kind of infantile intellectually to think, oh my gosh, temperatures are going to change and human beings with all our powers will not be able to do agriculture. So we better stop all our machines and then we'll be fine.
0: We'll go back to the good old days when again life expectancy was 30 years of age and uh, how do you want to run a society with eight billion people uh, with the technologies that were around when you had less than a billion i mean you've discussed that at length and better than i have so i don't want to uh, beat a dead horse here but that's what is uh, really you see w- what i try to do in the book and i guess i will have to try again or perhaps you will do it better than me to again i think what we need to do is to challenge their basic conception you have to admit that humans are different. If you don't get them to admit that, in my experience anyway, talking to my colleagues now for nearly two decades, you won't be able to break into their way of looking at the world if they're not willing to admit that we have some unique attributes. And at the same time, I think one of the problem on the optimistic side is that uh, especially in the post-World War II era, the way uh, modern economics was uh, transformed or at least uh, rewritten uh, much more uh, along the lines of mathematical models, general equilibrium, Economists sort of threw away a lot of uh, previous knowledge on creativity. Why is it that people are creative? How do we invent? And uh, creativity became this sort of manna from heaven or what they used to say exogenous factors. And I think... The problem when you discuss resource issues, economists will say, well, you've got the price system. If the price goes up, people will look for substitute. They'll use it more efficiently. Well, fine. Price theory is fine. But at the same time, and then they will say, well, and then people will be creative. And that's where I think you're always in trouble in this debate because people will say, well, how do you know it will work out this time? And what I try to do in the book is to point out some basic feature of human creativity in a free society uh, because, well, I wrote my doctoral dissertation talking to 50 inventors. I wanted them to understand what makes an, an innovator tick and what role, if any, does a big diversity play in the, into that. And there are some basic characteristics. Trust me, I've talked to a bunch of inventors in my life, and it's always problem solving. So it's always looking at things the way they are and, things, and going like, huh, there's got to be a better way, or isn't that wasteful? Or just let people be creative. There are some basic features of human creativity in a free society that ensures that if not all innovations will make a product greener, uh, most of the uh, fundamental uh, problems that people tackle will. You want to make something last longer. You want to make something less costly. Well, how do you make it less costly? Well, you use resources more efficiently. Um, Can you make uh, two two grasses grow where one grew before? Well, it, it makes complete sense to do that economically. And so unfortunately, the way modern economics develop, creativity was sort of pushed aside. And then at the, what I tried to show in the book is that previous generations of, let's say, less mathematically inclined economists often had a better theory of creativity than what came afterwards. And uh, that's one problem we have in a debate now. How do, we, how do you address this issue of, well, maybe what you said was true in the past, but today's completely irrelevant. Uh, today's completely different. We face challenges we've never faced before. And uh, again, what I try to point out in the book, Every Generation of Pessimists, says that. So uh, human creativity, we need to be better able to explain that to people.
1: Yeah, I agree totally. And particularly with the field of economics, not properly having that conception of human beings at all. Final topic I want to bring up is the prescription. So your book is called Population a bomb. So I want to talk about that a little bit too. So just to put it in context, today we hear, okay, the government should get dictatorial control over at least the energy industry. And then you start to see with the Green New Deal, oh wait, it's housing and agriculture agriculture and manufacturing. But what you show in the past, and to some extent today, though it's hidden, is you. this ultimately just goes down to government has to limit the number of people. So can you talk about this trend historically and also how it's still going on today, even though it's a little bit below the surface?
0: Yeah. The, well, what I, what I would argue is that the problem that many well-meaning greens have is that they don't understand markets. They don't understand the benefits of trade and the division of labor. To them, market is chaos. Markets, uh, Markets are about greed. Markets are about short-term selfishness. And what I want to, what I try to show in the book is that no, there is a logic behind markets and it's always about making choices among multiple options about uh, rewarding creativity, about rewarding people who challenge the status quo. So even within market economies, there is a spontaneous order there that they don't see that spontaneously both increases wealth and delivers incidentally uh, green benefits. Uh, but again, the problem is that if you view humans as, I'm sorry if I talk about locusts again, but I think that's the best image we can think of, if you just think if you just think as humans as more locusts, well, how do you deal with the plague of locusts? Well, you've got one in East Africa this year because of the war in Yemen, and I don't want to get into the details, but, well, you eradicate the goddamn things, I'm sorry, but that's how you deal with them. But again, humans are not uh, locusts. Um, and there are spontaneous outcomes generated by markets that will be good if you just stick to providing uh, the basic uh, institutional environments that will channels people, uh, channel people's creativity towards good outcome. But obviously this is not a message that is very popular among uh, politicians or people who have, shall I say, a messiah complex, or is that too strong a word? Um, when you, don't, uh, when you don't acknowledge what has gone on before and that humans are different, uh, well, then, of course, you treat uh, humans like other, uh, like any other human beings. And you can be like Paul Ehrlich. You can be wrong for, you know, the, the, the well, okay, I don't know if I should say that, but what I, what, what, what I don't say in class and what I often say in topics is that the problem with Paul Ehrlich is that he lives in Julian Simon's world. He's almost 90 years old. He can be in touch with all sorts of young researchers. The world over, he can say the same thing. He has his own little subsidized ecosystem from which he never needs uh, to get out of. And unfortunately, uh, he keeps being showered with awards because he essentially gives what a lot of politicians want to hear. And uh, a lot of people who select environmental issues as a way to build their career on or else who really believe in that kind of stuff cannot see beyond the sort of paradigm that someone like Ehrlich has. And uh, the problem with the Green New Deal and other alternatives is that they've already been rejected by the market. Well, if you believe that the market is just an arbitrary power struggle, then you could say, well, it's just that we haven't tried enough or those greedy corporations have, uh, have screwed us. But if you look at the market as a process of selection and comparing countless alternatives over time, uh, you can see that there's a reason why Europe that was once covered uh, with windmills and uh, small, scales da- small scale dams, got rid of them when coal came along. There were just a number of trade offs involved, and coal uh, was just better. Uh, but unfortunately, this is not um, understanding of market processes. And again, they're incidental environmental outcome is not something that has been uh, well understood, I would argue for the last two generations, but uh, perhaps you want to summarize what I said. Well, that's, more a good, that,
1: that's a good, you have some really good portions about both of those, the population control, but also the market processes. I've been thinking about that more lately because it's there's such a fallacy that like solar and wind are this exciting new market trend and so it it makes people who are critical of solar and wind mandates seem like oh we just want to hold back progress, whereas in reality like we're enthusiastic about fossil fuels because these are the most cost effective way that the best people in the world collaborating and competing. Have figured out how to produce energy. And in fact, if you look at modern energy, there is no modern energy of any kind without fossil fuels. It's not like 80% is fossil fuels and 20% is other things. And you could increase the 20% is totally dependent on fossil fuels. And you make some really good points. So it's not like really the fossil fuel industry, it's the energy industry. And the energy industry is overwhelmingly fossil fuel. And so if you think about it as today's fossil fuel energy production is that's the best thing the best minds can come up with. And then you see wind and solar. And these are things that are at least wind like rejected from the past. And these are things that are parasites and they're super limited even to just electricity. And they're limited in terms of their parasites unreliable sources of electricity. Then you start to see them as like a crank idea for like the kind of person who just says, oh, I have this thing that'll work but they actually can't make it work. And then on top of that, you point out, they're saying it needs to be dictated by the government. So you're trying to take something that can't actually produce in a free society, and then you're trying to institute it by like the coercion of a dictator, which is no difference in principle from what Russia did with agriculture in terms of taking a crackpot idea about agriculture and then dictating it and then having mass starvation. So I really appreciated that perspective.
0: Well, you might okay. know the. Yeah, I'm sorry. You, you might know the expression. The issue in the end is not uh, should we plan or not plan. No, it's who's plan and for whom. Mm. People in the private sector plan all the time, and uh, we we see major shifts in the private. When when a transition is good, it happens. Uh, I'm old enough to remember a world without cell phone. It's not like the government woke up one day and said, "Well, let's replace the old uh, copper-based." Uh, phone industry with uh, you know towers and satellites and what have you. Well, it was the same in the past. Uh, hydroelectricity became possible in the late 19th century, as you see, because of fossil fuels. I'm from Quebec. The one thing French Canadians are fa- were famous for at one point uh, were building some of the, the biggest hydroelectric dams in the world. Well, you know, try to uh, build that in the Canadian North without fossil fuel. How do you come up with concrete? What about the steel that goes into them? So, yes, hydroelectricity is considered renewable. But as you say, no, it's, it would be completely impossible without uh, carbon fuel. The same is true with, obviously, wind turbines, solar cells, what have you. So, um, yes, there's still a lot of education that needs to be done.
1: I mean, an analogy I think of is imagine just some green people said, you know what, like, let's stop making microchips out of silicon. And like, oh, we've got this, like, like, you know, it's quite possible. It's just a crackpot idea. And even if it wasn't, how long would it take to replace all the precise innovation that's gone into making every single freaking computer chip in the world? Out of silicon, and that's what they're saying. Like, oh, we've got this crackpot idea, and oh yeah, we'll fly planes. But then, if you look at somebody like Mark Jacobson, this guy from Stanford who's become right. prominent, yes. it's like his his assumptions include like hydrogen powered planes that don't exist yeah. at all. And he's like, oh well, yeah, by 2050, no problem. There's going to be hydrogen powered planes uh, around the world, and it's just that that kind of. But should I point so,
0: out his like, academic career is incredibly more successful than mine? Believe <laughs> When you say uh, what well, people
1: want to hear. Well, that's that's a perfect example of, of you know, there and it goes back to Ehrlich and Ehrlich's popularity because you mentioned with Ehrlich that he has this one big idea and I forget exactly how you characterize it, but I, I think of it as like, you know, man as like this parasite polluter whose production and consumption are unsustainable. But the idea that, you know, man's impact on earth is inherently self-destructive. And that's like, that's the core of what I call the anti-impact framework. And he's the most consistent adherent of that. And he just takes this idea and no matter what the circumstances, he knows that if we keep impacting things, it has to be bad and it has to somehow come back to bite us. And even 50 years later, like he's wrong. And he says, no, I was basically right. Like, you know, I have a higher understanding that kind of thing. And you see that there's a niche in the way societies go for people, even if they're totally refuted, they're valued. And so Jacob, I think Krugman is an example of this too, but certainly Jacobson where somebody needed some crackpot who seems prestigious to say, oh yeah, of course we can run the whole world on the technology the Greens claim to support at the moment, solar wind. Even though, of course, given it's the most high impact technology in the world in terms of land use and mining, they will oppose it in practice as they are already doing. But you need some crazy person to say, oh yeah, this random idea you came up with that contradicts everything we know and everything that energy producers know. Oh, of course this will work. And so let's publish it in like scientific America. Like you need, and with Krugman, it's basically, hey, you know how capital and freedom that actually creates prosperity. Well, we need an economist who says that an unlimited welfare and regulatory state is actually good economically. Now, Paul Krugman, you get a Nobel Prize. So I don't. I mean, I'm sad that that this happens, but it it kind of makes sense. And I think the the solace is nothing can compare with the satisfaction of actually pursuing the truth and saying things that are true. So I don't envy any of these people at all. What I do, what I would like to do is just spread the true ideas more clearly. And I agree with you that a lot of it starts with changing people's conception of human beings. And I do believe there are ways of explaining that that are persuasive to a lot of people.
0: Well, no, I completely agree. And uh, I cannot let this go uh, unsaid. you know, Krugman became uh, one of a lot of what Krugman did that got that got him a Nobel Prize had been done by earlier generation of economic geographers but you know we're at the bottom of the academic totem pole so it's easy to venture beyond the lands of academic responsibility come back with some idea claiming them as your own and having a nice career after that but that's um, that's that's the economic geographer speaking here
1: yeah, so well, I, I'll just say, in terms of my totem pole of things, I, I always really appreciate your work. I'm, I'm glad I finally got around to reading the whole book now that I needed to interview you. So I, I enjoyed it a lot, and I learned an amount, huge amount. And it's always just good to read somebody who is, who ha- is a really good researcher and can conceptually explain things well. So uh, at least, you you. got a fan in me, and not just because I was quoted in the book, which I was happy to see, <laughs> and I didn't know that I had been.
0: Uh-huh. I appreciate your work. Listen, there are a few of us out there and it's a a big educational battle. And uh, yes, batter down the hatches. Is that how you say that in English? Batter down the hatches. I think the next few years will be ugly, but uh, somebody has got to say unpopular, uh, unpopular, but true things.
1: Definitely. Okay. Pierre, where can people learn more about your work? Okay. So just
0: Google my name, uh, Pierre Desrochers. I'm at the University of Toronto. I've got a fairly elaborate website. And I try these days, especially to publish in uh, academic journals that are open access. So I try to uh, make my, world, uh, my work as easily available as possible. So just Google my name in Toronto and you'll find me easily.
1: And deroche is spelled Desrochers. Right? Yes. Well, actually, my name means
0: from the rocks in French for your, maybe that's why I'm hard at it. I don't know. But yeah, D-E-S-R-O-C-H-E-R-S.
1: All right, Pierre, thanks for coming on, and hopefully we'll have you back soon. Anytime. Take care. Thanks again to Pierre Durocher for coming on the show. I want to highly recommend his book, Population Bombed. We just scratched the surface of what's in it. As I mentioned at the end of the show, he's really a great researcher. He has tons of valuable material. He's good at referencing things. It reminds me in many ways of the book Where Is My Flying Car that I was so enthusiastic about, and I still am, in that you just learn so much about the way the world works, so much of the history of the way the world works. And it's, it's just a very concentrated shot of valuable knowledge. So definitely check that out. Uh, Population Bombed by Pierre de Rocher and Joanna, Joanna uh, Shermack. Well, I'll wrap up with that. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Let's see what else. Make sure to go to energytalkingpoints.com for talking points on all kinds of issues. And if you are an elected official or staff member at a governor's office or U.S. House or U.S. Senate, uh, you can join Energy Talking Points On Demand Uh for free. And you can get there at energy talking on demand.com and sign up and you'll get lots of custom current messaging on the many issues that are coming up right now. I'm recording this on Monday, January 18th. It's about to be inauguration of a new president. And there's going to be a lot in, in this realm, at least there's going to be a lot of bad stuff coming, but there's going to be a lot of good stuff coming from my end of things and from people like Pierre and other allies. So we'll have lots and lots of ammunition to go forward with. Uh, if you'd like to support our efforts, specifically our research and development and our promotional efforts at the Center for Industrial Progress, you can go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. Also, I mentioned this a little while back. There's a pretty significant college tour that is in development for me next year, uh, led by a really a major organization and they're currently taking donations for this tour. I think they're about halfway where they need to be. So it's, this is not for most people, but if, if you would consider donating uh 10,000 or more, it's a nonprofit thing. If you're interested in that, email me at alex at alexepstein.com. And I will put you in touch with them. So that should be cool. I hope to announce that coming to fruition in the next several months. Also, I've, I finally officially signed, like the book contract is officially signed. I'm hoping to announce the title soon, uh, but I am finishing that thing up and my manuscript is due on March 2nd. It's going really well. And I'm excited to be, uh, to be making progress. And at, at some point in the not too distant future, you guys will get to read this. So I've been probably talking about it for too long, but I'm glad to be really near the finish line. All right. That is it for this week. I'll be back next week with another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour.
0: Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.